0: Hello, and welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest Divinney. I'm the lead pastor at Asbury. Thanks for joining us, and we hope that this episode will enrich your walk with Christ, will increase your knowledge of the Bible, and hopefully entertain you a little bit as we go. If you are reading along in our one-year Bible plan, and I hope you are, because otherwise, why are you listening to this podcast? Uh, you, We're in uh, the book of Ezekiel, we're in Hebrews, and you know, we read psalms and proverbs every day. Um, I'm preaching on Hebrews on Sunday mornings right now, and so I'm going to focus my podcast on the book of Ezekiel. Now, I, I mentioned last week, this is one of my favorite books of the Old Testament because it is, uh, it's very different from the other prophetic books. For one thing, almost all of the other prophets write primarily in poetry. Uh, you can see this I mean, even in just the way that the text is formatted in your Bibles, right? It's set into a sort of poetic stanza all throughout Isaiah and Jeremiah. And when you get into the prophets following Ezekiel, you'll see that as well, that, that they're mostly writing in poetry. Now, a lot of people like poetry. Um, I'm not a huge fan of poetry, in all honesty, o- outside of you know, uh, poetry set to music. But when it, just in terms of like reading poetry, especially in the Bible, I, it's not my favorite. Because, of course, you know, reading poetry that was originally written in Hebrew and then has been translated three or four times to make it into English, it, it, it loses some of the things that make the poetry beautiful in a lot of ways. Now, that doesn't mean I don't like the other prophets. I, Isaiah and Jeremiah are both really rich, deep books that have a lot to say. And they have a lot to tell us and a lot to teach us. Um, but I, I have a feeling that if I could read them in the original Hebrew, I probably would appreciate them a lot more. Because the poetry would, would be more beautiful on its own. Um, that's why I, I appreciate Ezekiel because there's very little poetry in Ezekiel. It's almost entirely written in prose. And just the way that my mind works, this makes it easier for me to read through the book of Ezekiel uh, and to approach it. Uh, and I will tell you, of course, that the, m- the more I read Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and Micah and Amos and, and Hosea, you know, the more I come to appreciate the poetry in them. But nonetheless, it's always going to be easier for me, I think, to read through the book of Ezekiel and follow along and, and keep myself engaged with it. So, it's a great book. And it's it's just, it's so interesting because Ezekiel has so many visions and there's this wonderful mix. And I'll highlight some of this today as we go through uh, the chapters of Ezekiel that we are reading this week. But there is this wonderful mix in Ezekiel of um, what I would call sort of normal prophecy. Okay. The kinds of prophetic gifting that is accessible to everyone and that almost all Christians, I believe, should be able to experience, as well as some truly just outlandish visions and things that are going on which are um, which are not part of the way that God speaks to everybody uh, in, in general terms. So, that, that's one of the things I love about this book. It's just beautiful. There's, there's parts where Ezekiel is just just practicing a prophetic gifting that is accessible to anyone. And then there's parts where something profoundly supernatural is happening, and it gets weird, and I love it. <laughs> so we're going to start in chapter 10, which is exactly one of these weird things. Now, this is in the middle of a vision that Ezekiel is having, and, and, and in this vision... What is happening is the the glory of the Lord, or the presence of God, is leaving the temple. So I'm just going to read beginning in the, in, in the beginning of chapter ten. I looked and I saw the likeness of a throne of lapis lazuli above the vault that was over the heads of the cherubim. The Lord said to the man clothed in linen. Go in among the wheels beneath the cherubim. Fill your hands with burning coals from among the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And as I watched, he went in. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the temple when the man went in, and a cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord rose from above the cherubim and moved to the threshold of the temple. The cloud filled the temple. And the court was full of the radiance of the glory of the Lord. The sound of the wings of the cherubim could be heard as far away as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. When the Lord commanded the man in linen, take fire from among the wheels, from among the cherubim, the man went in and stood beside the wheel. Then one of the cherubim reached out his hand to the fire that was among them. He took up some of it and put it into the hands of the man in linen who went out and took it. Under the wings of the cherubim could be seen what looked like human hands. I saw, and beside the cherubim, four wheels, one beside each of the cherubim. The wheels sparkled like topaz. As for their appearance, the four of them looked alike. Each was like a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the cherubim faced. The wheels did not turn about as the cherubim went. The cherubim went in whatever direction the head faced without turning as they went. Their entire bodies, including their backs, their hands, and their wings, were completely full of eyes, as were their four wheels. I heard the wheels being called the Whirling Wheels. Each of the cherubim had four faces. One face was that of a cherub, the second the face of a human being, the third the face of a lion, and the fourth the face of an eagle. Then the cherubim rose upward. These were the living creatures I had seen by the Kibar River. When the cherubim moved, the wheels beside them moved, and when the cherubim spread their wings to rise from the ground, the wheels did not leave their side. When the cherubim stood still, they also stood still, and when the cherubim rose, They rose with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in them. Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple, and stopped above the cherubim. While I watched, the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground, and as they went, the wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the Lord, the God of Israel, was above them. These were the living creatures I had seen beneath the God of Israel, by the Kebar river and i realized that they were cherubim each had four faces and four wings and under their wings was what looked like human hands their faces had the same appearance as those i had seen by the Kebar river each one went straight ahead so this is one of those visions that has led some people to think that the book of ezekiel is actually talking about aliens right um, they they think that the cherubim are alien beings, and the wheels themselves are like the UFOs they flew down in, right? Um, I, I don't put any stock in those ideas. I think it's pretty clear he's having some sort of vision of, of these angelic creatures, right? The, these supernatural, inhuman, non-earthly creatures, who are nonetheless not aliens but angels. And there are people, by the way, who will suggest that most encounters that people report as being encounters with aliens are really uh, encounters with angels and demons, right? Because, of course, some people who encounter aliens have a, have an, or who say they've encountered aliens have, like, a, a an overwhelmingly positive, peaceful experience, so people would suggest these are angels, whereas the the people who report being abducted or encountering aliens and it's a fearful, terrifying thing... Some would say that those are demons. I don't know if I put any stock in those ideas or not. Um, I just, it's an interesting thing that's worth thinking about, but I don't really know that it's spot on, or or I think there's plenty of other plausible explanations for that, just like I think we don't need to turn to that to explain what's happening in Ezekiel. He's having a vision, and he goes into detail of of the appearance of these angelic creatures, I I think primarily just to... Just to help us understand that something weird is happening. He's encountering something he doesn't know how to explain. And and it's obvious that to him, uh, this is a vision from God. Because no one would imagine a creature like this. Uh, no one's brain works like that to imagine such an odd creature. So there's, and, and to be fair, there may be some symbolism in the appearance of the cherubim that I am not aware of. Um. You're welcome to do your own research on that. But the the important part of this story is not actually the weirdness of the, of the of, I almost said aliens, the weirdness of the angels. The importance of, of the vision is that God's presence, God's glory is leaving the temple in Jerusalem. Now, if you think back into, uh, I believe it's 1 Kings, when Solomon builds the temple What happens? Well, there is this massive sort of pillar of cloud and light that descends upon the temple. God's presence in the temple is visible even to those outside of the temple. So much so that there is a Hebrew word for it, the shekinah, the glory and the presence of the Lord on the temple. And it was, by the way, that was true of the tabernacle, As well. Now, it isn't totally clear. It isn't totally clear from reading the rest of the Old Testament, if that was the sort of thing that was always there. Um, You would you would think, for instance, that all those times uh, that Israel got that the city of Jerusalem was under siege and attacked, that people might have commented on the weird pillar of cloud connecting the temple with the heavens. Um, but it's also possible that during those times, since God was in that moment punishing Judah and Jerusalem, that God's presence departed temporarily and then came back later on when they were faithful again. Um, and the reason I say that is that that story in First Kings where God's presence descends onto the temple, there is no moment where... When it says that God's presence then departs after their initial ceremony is over. And so it does imply that that visible presence, that visible glory of God remained on the temple. And I I wonder if actually the best thing to assume is that so long as the people of Israel and later the people of Judah were being faithful... They could literally look to the Temple Mount and see the glory of God around the temple in the form of this great clouds and light and glory. Which would mean, of course, that there were times when they weren't being faithful and that was gone. And you you say that and people then begin to think, well, wouldn't that have made it very difficult for them to be unfaithful because they could just look and see? But you know... You and I have an an even more intimate connection to God because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Our very bodies have actually taken the place of the temple in Jerusalem. We, We have an even better sense, or we should have an even better sense of when we are being faithful to God or not, and yet we still mess up. So I am fascinated by this idea of the glory of the Lord around the temple in a way that people could look at it and see. And here you have this, this vision in Ezekiel. And, and to me, it's much more powerful when we begin to think of um, the visible presence of God departing the temple temporarily when the people of Israel are being unfaithful. Because then what this teaches them, or at least I suppose the lesson they learn, which is not what the lesson God meant for them to learn, but nonetheless it's what they learned, is that they can simply turn back to God and God's presence will return and all will be well. And in this vision, what's happening is that God is saying to Ezekiel, not this time, not this time, this time my presence is actually leaving permanently. There is a different feel to it. You could even say that, like, okay, God's visible presence had departed in the past, but in a very real sense, he was still present in the temple. They just couldn't see it. Now, he's not there at all. And to be very clear, he will never return to that temple in the same way he did when it was first built. When when they come back after exile. And they build a second temple. There is no moment. Where the glory of the Lord. Descends upon it. There is no mention of. Of this glorious Shekinah. This glorious visible sign. Of God's presence on the temple. It does not happen. With the second temple. God's visible Presence does not return to Jerusalem until Jesus walks through the gates in the Gospels, We're going to move on now to chapter 12 because we do read like 10 chapters of Ezekiel this week. I won't be able to cover them all, uh, but I'm going to try and hit what I think are the highlights. So in chapter 12, um, this is not a vision in chapter 12. This is Ezekiel, uh, and he's, he's asked by God to do this weird thing, okay? He's, he's tasked with living out an embodied prophecy. So he's told to, to pack a bag, to dig through the wall in the sight of all the people, to throw his bag over his shoulder, and to cover his eyes as if he's, right? So he's, he's, he's almost acting as if he's, like, trying to escape from the city. And he covers his eyes so he can't see the land. So the symbolism here is that um, anybody who is still trapped in Jerusalem, who tries to escape God's judgment, will never see the promised land again. Anyone who attempts to escape from Jerusalem will be taken to Babylon to die. And the second sign happens while he's eating, he's, he's commanded to to. Shake while he eats and drinks. Kind of weird, right? But it literally, the word of the Lord came to me Son of man, tremble as you eat your food, and shudder in fear as you drink your water. And say to the people of the land, This is what the sovereign Lord says about those living in Jerusalem and in the land of Israel. They will eat their food in anxiety and drink their water in despair, for their land will be stripped of everything in it because of the violence of all who live there. So these prophecies it's it's kind of an odd thing because Ezekiel is living in exile. All the people who see what he's doing are also in exile and yet he is living out these embodied prophecies about the people who are still in Jerusalem, right? So after he does the thing where he digs through the wall with a bag and, and covers his eyes in verse 10 This is what the Sovereign Lord says. This prophecy concerns the prince in Jerusalem and all the Israelites who are there. And then skipping ahead, right? The prince among them will put his things on his shoulder at dusk and leave, and a hole will be dug in the wall for him to go through. He will cover his face so that he cannot see the land. I will spread my net for him, and he will be caught in my snare. I will bring him to Babylonia, the land of the Chaldeans, but he will not see it, and there he will die. And that's true, by the way, that the, uh, the king of Israel, who is by this time a puppet king of Babylon, when he rebels against the Babylonians, and he tries to escape their siege of Jerusalem, but he's caught, and he's blinded, they gouge out his eyes, and then they carry him captive back to Israel, he never sees the land again, and he dies in Babylon. Uh, and then, of course, there's this second time where he... He's commanded to shake in fear while he eats and drinks as if he's afraid. And he's depicting the fear of Jerusalem's inhabitants as they go about their daily lives, waiting for the day when Babylon strikes because they all know it's coming. And this seems weird to us, but there's one important thing here is we are an embodied people. We are an embodied people. Our bodies matter. Uh, we we are not souls inhabiting bodies. We are bodies. This is why the resurrection matters, right? God will restore us to life in our resurrection. Um, we are embodied people, and our bodies matter, and what we do with them matters. And we, you know, one of the things we teach, for instance, about uh, marriage is that uh, in when we are married, we are a living icon a living icon, a living representative, a living window into the inner life of God. The self-sacrificial love between two people, and and more importantly, the, the two people who have become one. You know, that's not figurative language. We really believe that in marriage, two people become united into one in a unique and mysterious way, much like the Trinity, three in one. Um, And so every married couple is an icon into the inner life of God. And when a married couple has children, they become even more of an icon because now they are creating life. Uh, Likewise, we believe that you're supposed to be celibate in singleness because when you are not married, you live in celibacy as an icon of the future reality for all humanity. Because Jesus says that in the resurrection, we will not marry at all. We will all be single. There will be no sexuality in the resurrection so those who are called to a life of celibacy and those who simply are not married yet are living icons pointing ahead to our future reality uh, and as a side note this also tells us that sexuality is not eternal does not follow us into eternity into eternity which means therefore it cannot be an essential part of our identity but that's a separate discussion but but so this this is an example of how our bodies actually have theological significance. And Ezekiel as a prophet is is using that, right? He is tasked with living out prophecies, showing people with physical actions what God is doing because it's a way of depicting for them the message that God is trying to communicate. And he does this more than than any other prophet. The only one who comes close I think is Isaiah, who does some things like that as well, but but Ezekiel's going to be asked to do this a lot because uh, Ezekiel has a very hard time getting the people to understand what God is saying. And God says, well, maybe if you acted out, some of these these stubborn people will finally begin to understand what's going on. Um, so it's weird to us because we are not used to thinking of our bodies as being that significant. Um, but that's actually a pretty crucial part of Jewish thought and theology, especially in the ancient world. And so uh, it seems kind of natural that prophets would be asked to live out a prophecy. To use their bodies to help communicate the word of the Lord. And now we skip ahead to chapter 14. Where Ezekiel prophesies against these uh, elders who have embraced idolatry. And what's so interesting about this is there's no vision. There's no vision. So here's what happens, right? Some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat down in front of me. And then the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man. These men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? Therefore speak to them and tell them. This is what the sovereign Lord says. When any of the Israelites set up idols in their hearts and put a wicked stumbling block before their faces and then go to a prophet, I, the Lord, will answer them myself in keeping with their great idolatry. I will do this to recapture the hearts of the people of Israel who have all deserted me for their idols. What is so interesting to me about this prophecy, there's no vision, there's no dream, there's no mystical, hard-to-understand thing. This is very much the gift of prophecy that Paul lists as one of the spiritual gifts in the New Testament. It's a gift of prophecy that any one of us can actually practice. Ezekiel has these men sit in front of him, and and somewhere deep inside him, he hears the small, still voice of God telling him what to say. It might not be an audible voice. It might just be something he feels in his heart, and he's learned to discern when that's God and when it's not. But this is the gift of prophecy, Uh I recommended a book on Sunday called "How to Hear God," and and in that book, Pete Greg goes into detail a little bit on on how to practice this gift of prophecy, how to learn to pay attention to what the Lord is leading you to tell people, um, how you might suddenly feel the urge to go and tell a person something, and it might seem might seem random, it might seem just odd out of the blue. But when you do it, when you begin actually doing that, what you begin to find is that God is using you as a prophet. And this is a gift which is freely available to every Christian. Now, obviously, you want to be careful. You have to learn to discern when it's uh, something from God and when it's not. And, and Pete goes into detail on sort of how you can learn to do that. But the, the key is you'll, you'll, you should be able to know. If some, you know When God gives prophecy, it's for building people up, it's for correcting sin, but it's always out of love, uh, and it's always out of compassion. And I, I highlight this because we think of prophets as like a separate class of people, and they're not. They're not. They, they might have been in the Old Testament. They may have been then. But now that all of us have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, We all can access the gift of prophecy, and the Apostle Paul seemed quite convinced that that was the single most important spiritual gift for many of us to use. He felt that was such an important tool for God to use to communicate in us and through us. And I want to encourage you to think about that, to think about how many times you have felt a sudden urge to go and tell somebody something. Maybe you're sitting in church, and you feel an urge to go tell somebody a few seats down, something. Maybe it's just you feel an urge to give somebody a phone call and ask how they're doing or or tell them something or send them a text message even uh, and and say hey, I think you need to hear this. Because that very well could be the spirit communicating through you to that person. And the more you begin to be attentive to that and to and to be obedient to that, the more you will see God using you as an instrument of prophecy. And I know that makes people uncomfortable and we think it's weird. Just trust me. It happens. I I personally have actually received multiple words from God that way in in my life. Um, Some of them I still have not figured out what they mean which tells me that the prophecy has not yet happened. But some of them, some of them have absolutely come true. Some of them have actually been very helpful in helping me make decisions about my life. At the very least, some of them have simply given me a sense of peace where I might otherwise have really struggled with something. Uh, And so I'm telling you, I have received the gift of prophecy. I have not been... Very diligent about practicing the gift of prophecy, and this is an area in which I need to grow. So maybe we can grow in that together. And so we come to uh, chapter twenty, which is you will. We have not read this yet. We'll read it towards the. Well, when will we read this? Chapter twenty. We'll read this sort of towards. The end of the week. Uh, In a couple of days, we'll be into chapter 20. And this really, um, this is kind of a harsh word to the elders who come to Ezekiel for a word from the Lord. Um, But it's one that's needed. Because what he does is he summarizes in this chapter... All of the things that God has done for the people of Israel and all of the ways in which the people of Israel have rebelled against God. And so what he's highlighting is how incredibly patient and gracious God has been. He's trying to help them understand the predicament they find themselves in and and what God must do now because he wants them to know That, look, God, God has been so patient with you. He's given you so many second chances. He has worked with us time and time again. He's forgiven us time and time again. And we never learned the lesson. So what's happening now is that God is having to take extreme measures to get through to us. But then in the midst of this, he's going to say that God will one day be king over our people. And so even in the midst of this talk about judgment, he foreshadows the salvation to come. Because there is very rarely a point in the Old Testament where judgment, condemnation, punishment is not accompanied with a message of hope and salvation. Judgment and punishment is never the end of the story. God is not an angry, wrathful God. God is a God of justice who wants to bring his people back to him. And so all of this is done with a purpose. All of it is done with an eye to the salvation of the people of Israel. And that's what he'll say in chapter 20. So I love this book. I love Ezekiel. Um, it, It just gives us such a glimpse into what it means to be a prophet, but it also is just so complex and so rich And there's so many different things going on, and it's just so unique amongst the prophetic books of the Old Testament. So I I hope you are enjoying reading that book. As always, my friends, if you have any questions you would like to ask about scriptures that you'd like me to answer on this podcast, send them in, email them to me, email them to the church office, or stop me in person on a Sunday and ask it, and I'll write it down, and I'll put it in next week's podcast. but they can be questions about what we're reading right now. They can be questions about what we've already read, about things we have not yet read. I, I want to make sure that you have—this is your chance to, to ask any question you have about the Bible, and I will do my best to answer them. So Until next week, God bless.